In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The year was 1997. I was 14 years old, and I was in eighth grade. And my sister, who was only about two years older than me, had just gotten her first car. It was a little green Honda Accord that my family had been driving around for probably seven or eight years, and my parents were going to buy themselves a new car, and this one would be passed down to me and my sister. And this car would be the way that Brooke and I would get to school for the next couple of years. And the commute from Pace to Pensacola, where we went to school, was about 30 minutes. And every morning on our way to school, we would listen to the local Christian radio station, Power 88. Now, as a 14-year-old boy, there were a lot of other things I probably would have rather listened to on the radio. But my sister would also use this time while she was driving me to school to put on makeup. And so these Christian songs helped me prepare to meet Jesus. Which I was pretty sure was going to happen on the way to school. But in 1997, there was this band, and I'm curious if any of you remember them, uh, Burlap to Cashmere. Got a, got a hand over here? I, I thought Ben was going to remember them. But there was this band, Burlap to Cashmere, and they had this song called Basic Instructions. And they would take the word Bible, B-I-B-L-E, and they made it into an acronym. I don't know if they did it, but they, they took it, and they changed it to Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. As a 14-year-old boy, this made total sense to me. This was what the Bible was. It was this magical book that had been written by God and delivered to humanity, and it was it had this ability to speak into people's lives, and almost like in your glove compartment, when the little light comes on that says check engine, and you simply go to the index, and you find the step-by-step solution to how to fix that problem, the Bible was that manual whenever the check heart, or check soul, or check spirit light came on. And I can remember people much older than me, and much more mature than me, telling me that if I didn't know where to turn in the Bible, to simply leaf through the pages and to blindly put my finger down, and somehow in that moment, God would speak to me and tell me what I was supposed to do. I've read the Bible for a long time now, and the older that I get and the more that I read it, the more that I realize that that is not how the Bible works. And I don't have time to go into my own personal theology this morning of what the Bible is or how it speaks into our lives, but I certainly do believe it is the Word of God, and I certainly do believe that it has the power to speak into our lives. But my view has changed over these last 24 years because of passages like the Gospel passage this morning. Y'all, this is a strange one. This is a strange reading from the very beginning. And the truth is, is that most of us read it this week, or we heard it read to us, and we gave it a pass because it's the Bible. But if this was a movie that we were all watching together, or if we were in a book club and we were discussing the plot, this thing has holes all in it. There's 
Things left unexplained, there's magical elements introduced into the story without any type of explanation or background. And I think that we read it and we just go, yeah, it's a miracle story, that works. But this is a strange reading, not only because of what is in the story and also because of what is left out, but it's a strange reading because of the way it arrives to us this morning. Because we only get half the story The story actually goes from the fifth chapter of John, verse 1 through 15, and yet we only get verses 1 through 9. It cuts off right in the middle. And spoilers, we're not going to pick it up next week. And even more surprising, the rest of the fifth chapter of John, all other 38 verses never once show up anywhere else in the lectionary. And so if you want to read this passage in its entirety, you'll have to do it on your own or you'll have to start praying the daily office. The story opens, Jesus has performed a miracle in Capernaum, a public miracle, and now he's making his way to Jerusalem, and there is a festival of the Jews. And this is the only text that I can remember where there is an unnamed festival. We don't know what festival this is. We don't know what time of year it is. Maybe we could work backwards from the rest of the text and comparing the other gospels. All we know from this statement is that Jesus is headed into the center of society and there are going to be lots of people there. We are introduced to the idea that there is a pool there. And this pool has healing powers of some sort, but we are not told why it has healing powers, or how it has healing powers. In in fact, we have to deduce from the story that it has healing powers because the man talking to Jesus talks about that when the water is stirred up, others make it to the water before him so that he cannot gain access to this healing. But we're given no explanation of what stirs the water up or how often it's stirred or why it's limited in power and only a few can make it. And maybe it's not even a few, maybe it's just one. And so, my friends, this is a strange reading, made even more strange by a mysterious central character, not counting Jesus. Although there's some mystery there, too. The man that Jesus encounters is nameless. We know nothing about his upbringing or his parents. We don't know where he was born. We don't know if he has always lived near this pool. We don't know how he ended up there. The scripture says that there are five porticos near these pools. If you don't know what a portico is, it's a structure with pillars and a covering. And the text says that there are many invalids there. That's the word it uses. And it describes those invalids as blind, lame, and paralyzed. And so we get examples of who might be there, but we don't know the actual illness that this man who we are talking about has. We don't know when he became ill. We only know that he has been ill for 38 years. Was he ill from birth? Did it happen as an infant? Was this a childhood accident? Did he do something bad and God struck him with this illness? Did he make a wrong decision? Was he in a chariot accident? We don't know how this man arrived in this condition, we arrive at the story and he is simply there, unable to walk and in this condition for 38 years. And made even more strange, the average life expectancy in the first century was about 33 years. This man has already lived beyond, in his ill state, the life expectancy of that time. 
a person with good access to health care and wealth. The upper class of this society might have made it to 50, but imagine that this man has gotten ill in his childhood. He's almost close to that age. There are so many questions that I have about this text. It almost does not make sense to me. And then it says that the reason that he cannot make it down to the water to be healed is because he has no one to take him. Maybe that's because he's outlived all of his friends. Maybe he's not that nice of a guy and nobody wants to hang out with him. The more obvious question to me is how is he surviving by the waterside? How is he getting food and the things that he needs in order to survive these 38 years if these same people can't stick around for just a little bit to help him down to the water? We don't know if he is homeless or if he lives there, if someone is only able to pick him up before and after work. We just know that he is there at this moment. And Jesus enters the middle of this story and he sees the man and Jesus knows that he has been there for a long time. But we don't know if Jesus knows this because of his own divine knowledge, if Jesus has passed by this place before, or if simply looking at the man, it is obvious that he has been here for many, many years. Jesus walks up to the man and he asks what some might describe as a silly question. So let's run that back. A strange story, a mysterious character, and now a silly question from Jesus. I read this story in community multiple times this week, and every single time someone would say, why in the world would Jesus ask this man, do you want to be made well? Of course, of course he wants to be made well. Except, maybe consent is important even in healing. Maybe God calls us to participate in our healing and doesn't simply just inflict it upon us. Maybe Jesus understood that this man had been in this condition for 38 years and had no community support, had no job, had no home to return to. That this illness, his whole life was built around this. And so to heal him now might disrupt his life completely. This story is rich and confusing and challenging, and I almost have a hard time suspending my disbelief to actually read it. And yet, and yet, this is exactly the kind of stories that you and I need to read. Not because they are basic instructions for leaving earth, but because this story, like so many other stories in the Bible, become lenses through which you and I can see our own lives and our own context and our own community. The danger of these stories becoming too specific is if we tried to apply them to our lives, we might just say, oh no, my situation doesn't qualify because it doesn't match all the details and the specifics of this story. But this story as a blank slate suddenly becomes a lens through which you and I can see our entire world and our lives and our contexts, and we might just learn how to live by looking through it. And so perhaps the question that this story first begins to invite us to ask is who is this man in our lives? What person or group of persons do we walk by every single day? What group of persons or person do we see suffering, marginalized, without access to health care or healing or wholeness? 
who has no community to help them get to the things, access to the things that they actually need, who in our lives needs the things that we have. We might be able to make the leap and to understand that truly, this is a story about our lives, not a story about 2,000 years ago. But we might stop there by saying, well, but I don't have the power of Jesus. I can't tell anyone to pick up their bed, to stand up and to walk, who doesn't have that physical capability. And yet, I still think we are asking the wrong question. Because you and I have so much wealth. And I'm not just talking about what's in your pocketbook or in your bank account. Our lives are overflowing with blessing, with talent, with gifts, things that God has given us so that we can reduce the suffering of those around us. So the question is not, do I have the power of Jesus? But how do I ask the same question that Jesus asks to the people I encounter? Do you want to be made well? In other words, I don't inflict upon them what I think will make them well, but I join them, I participate with them, I enter into relationship with them, and I actively participate in reducing their suffering and bringing them into a place, their telos, the place that God has called them to be and created them to become. My friends, the Bible is not basic instructions before leaving earth, but it is basic instructions for how to live in this world, not to escape it, for how to see the world around you, for how to love your neighbor, for how to minister to them. These stories are not simply supposed to pass over us. They're not supposed to be entertaining. They are lenses through which to see our world. And my friends, I hope we will use this story and many others like it to look around and to see our neighborhood, to see Barrington and Starcrest and San Antonio and to see our nation and the larger world around us and to know how to love it and to follow God, to follow Jesus in loving and healing that world. Amen.